This is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations, as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. It's going to be kind of weird to do the bring, bring, bring. Don't do the bring. Really? Don't do the bring. We have to. No, you don't. You could even like make an excuse not doing it. You could say, we're not going to do the bring this time because actually we're breaking COVID something and time's right here. Oh, no, you're you're the boss. It's your show. You do the bring if you want. (laughs) Well. We don't know how to I've already thrown you off. I don't know. I've already thrown you off. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Okay, so today you guys aren't going to hear my signature bring, bring, bring because we have a special treat. We have Simon Denny in person in our studio. In the studio. Second ever Shimon Basar was the first sitting in that chair. It's a great chair. It's a great chair. It's We're a using a different chair. <laughs> using a different mic setup this time. Um, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you guys? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. It's the end of the year. The internet is aflame. Yeah. Whew. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the, in- the internet, the internet's aflame. The internet's uh, always aflame. Trying yeah. desperately. I was sending earlier, um, I was sending out like choral songs to people. Sounds calming. On Twitter. Yeah, I was like, more choir, less noise. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of noise, a lot of uh, interference in discussions right now. Um, it's been a big week for you. It's been a big week. It's been a big week. I did. I did a launch. Yeah, you did a launch. I did a launch. I made a drop. Let, <laughs> wait, before we get into the drops and the launches and um, the ends, I and bought outs, a company. Let's, like, let's be honest. I bought before a company. we get into all of that, the, there are some people who are listening who might not be familiar with who you are and your work. So let's start with a brief introduction, if you don't mind. I don't mind. Um, so my name is Simon Denny, and I am an artist. And I've done art in lots of different contexts, but I started making art where I grew up in New Zealand. And uh, then I moved to Germany to go to art school um, after that, second art school. uh, And that was about 15 years ago. And um, then I have been making art, yeah, ever since in museums and galleries uh, in Europe and the States and a little bit in China and a little bit in Australasia. And I also make art on the internet. And you conduct drops. And I conduct... (laughs) Drops. A, d- a drop conductor. I'm a drop conductor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that's something that we could dive into. I think it's interesting that you are active in all these different spaces. And you're an institutional artist in some, you know, in some respects. You mm-hmm. also are obviously a gallery kind of represented artist. Mm-hmm. You do art fairs and things of this nature. Mm-hmm. And you also release NFTs and mm-hmm. do things online. So, yeah, how do you navigate these different spaces? Yeah, uh, it's all just happened pretty organically, to be honest. Uh, and navigating them is fun. I guess like context shift is uh, is something I got used to. You know, getting down in different places with different codes and code switching and learning codes. And um, I also teach and I also curate. So that's mm-hmm. other roles that I also play quite often. And I founded a mentoring program here in Berlin for artists as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's called uh, Berlin Program for Artists. <laughs> cool. It's a bit literal. <laughs> I try not to complicate things too much. <laughs> yeah. but, H- hold uh, that thought when we discuss the draw. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, so I like to do lots of different things because I'm also like, I'm a fan of art and a fan of artists and uh, and different types of culture. So I don't know, I can't just do one thing apparently. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's kind of like the contemporary condition, right? Is like, I know, 
what I think is maybe worthwhile pointing out here, I mean, you've already kind of qualified this, but like as far as artists kind of maybe experimenting in the new internet go, you are amongst a handful of people who are very established in the, let's say, capital A art world. Mm-hmm. Ha- you know, but but you're unique in some senses because, I mean, we've known you for a while and I first got to know of your work um through you looking at the nascent at that point kind of blockchain space yeah right so in Wait, a sense what year was this oh god what year was that so <laughs> 2015 yeah i'm gonna say 15 2015 um so in a sense you're dabbling in this world uh if if one were to claim that there are some capital a artists dabbling in this world uh uh in an inconsistent fashion with their previous work. I don't think that that could be leveled at you. Um, So what first made you interested in the space, I guess? Mm -hmm. Um, We're not going to try and do like a full overview of previous works, but I think that those works are probably quite relevant to discuss. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, so I moved to Germany the year of the iPhone, uh, 2007. And uh, and I met a bunch of people in art school uh, who actually... I'm still in touch with and who are involved in web three ish adjacent mm-hmm. things now. Um, and, but I met them back then when we were all just being like, Oh my God, what is mobile going to be? What is social going to be like? And how have artists dealt with stuff? Yep. And like at art school, I got really into like looking at the history of artists dealing with media. I got really into artists dealing with television. That was like my first mm-hmm. fascination. It's was like, wow, artists made TV. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Cable TV by artists. Wow. Raindance Corporation. Holy mm-hmm. shit. Like artists being corporations. Well, wow, that's interesting too. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, so I was reading Art Forum, but I was also reading Wired and I was uh, reading Texted to Kunst, but I was also reading, I don't know, I was also going to like trying to go to tech conferences to kind of learn about like what was happening and with people building that stuff. And I think that's how I kind of got into making art about stories that are told about technology. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's been, that was my installation practice for a few years. Actually, yeah, almost a decade now has been making art about stories that are told about technology, often by people building businesses. Mm-hmm. And I got really interested in the way, yeah, people framed what they thought the world was going to be like from the position of their business. And... um and then, yeah, obviously uh, was interested in social and all those things. And then suddenly, of course, if you hang around that world long enough in the early part of the 2010s, somebody's going to mention Bitcoins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the first time I heard about Bitcoin was because some other artist friends of mine were buying drugs yeah. using <laughs> Bitcoin. And then I was like, wait, you money on what? And, and uh, yeah, and then I started to obviously notice that there was more being talked about than just that and uh yeah of course notice some very interesting stories being told about the future of the world based on blockchain technology by people building businesses in that space so i guess it was a natural shift from where my research came from to starting to make art about that i want to dive into that much deeper but i just want to like go back into time a little bit and can you paint a picture of what it was like to be dealing with these kind of tech narratives in art school and directly thereafter like was that something that was welcome or were they're kind of like old guard professors who were really turned off by that or what were the kind of like battles of the day and mm. how have those resolved or remained good question um there's always been kind of artists making art about technology so anybody that's kind of like versed in like art history properly or whatever which is i'm being lucky to be taught by them you know will point back to artists that made artwork about the industrial age mm-hmm. and whatever so you have the john cages and the nam jim pikes and mm-hmm. the, you know like these these are fully canonized positions which are hard to push back on mm-hmm. but you do have this world where the art world that i went to art school in in frankfurt at the Stadelschule, there was kind of like a, a media art world and yeah. that was that, that was a separate thing than the kind of art art world and i had to learn that because in new zealand that wasn't really a thing either and the media art world was a little bit kind of like oh why are they obsessed with all these kind of buttons and stuff you know Mm -hmm. and like do we really want to see holograms Mm -hmm. because is it really doing so much more than our painting you know Mm -hmm. there were these types of divisions and I think also wrapped in that was like something that I think you guys have talked about a bit is also like uh, different ways of dealing with money and Mm -hmm. like the relationship between like artists running businesses and I guess openly identifying with building businesses as a strategy and being clear about that. And I think there was something along those lines as well, because I think the kind of media art world was quite 
comfortable with working with industry because there was a lot of funding coming through that. Yeah, and right. like the art world does too, but they sort of, or that art world at the time seemed a little bit less uh, confident about foregrounding the fact that a lot of money came from different businesses. And there was, I think, a bit of uh, political confusion around all of that from various actors who identified with certain narratives that they, yeah, that contradicted maybe some of where the funding was coming from. You know, yep. I don't know. So there was a big package of things. And certainly sometimes when I said, oh, I'm going to make art about the internet, I'm going to this internet conference, some people would be like, oh, why would you bother doing that? Or they would be like, oh, and this is one that's lasted. That sounds really complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get my head around that. Uh, see you next week at the opening or whatever. You yeah. know? So there's there's been a few different like cutoff points for various people. But then on the other hand, there's been peers that have kind of lasted the whole way through and uh, dialogues that have kind of continued and evolved. And also, to be honest, like people from the art art world who, while they didn't really want to go deep into it themselves were kind of interested in the way that I was using like installation idioms and kind of art historical references and kind of like genres that they respected and understood and then kind of bringing this new kind of narratives and politics into it. And they, you know, they stayed in that zone wanting to see things in museums and feeling sometimes that things were a little bit complicated if you brought in kind of certain technological narratives, but being amused and interested at the way that I, you know, change that idiom and I guess exchange different codes into different contexts. So, you know, there's been a range of yeah, ways of accepting or not. The- yeah, it's funny it's funny that like with capital A art, like the etiquette around industrialists, there was this is a complete <laughs> aside, but like it was like a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, there was some VC guy, I forget his name, but he was tweeting something about NFTs and being like, the problem with NFTs isn't the tech, it's the art. And he used to justify it an image of Joseph Boys um, hanging out with like a jackal or something. Mm -hmm. There's like a famous piece where he's hanging out with like this wild animal. And and he's like, yeah, that's right, guys. That's Joseph Boys hanging out with a jackal uh, and filming it as art. Is this kind of like great slam dunk of being like, well, actually, you know, art could be more expansive in the realm. I actually agree with that point. But what's kind of funny on that is it's, I was like, I wonder who funded Joseph Boyd. Well, yeah, and, and there's then, a lot of different people that funded Joseph Boyd. Well, I looked into yeah. it. I looked into it, and and Joseph Boyd, for the best part of a of a couple of decades, was like a largely depressed, misunderstood person who was taken under the wing of these wealthy young industrialists from the same hometown as them, whose dad invented the pigment that uh, colors margarine like butter. Oh my god. Um, and from that, he was a chemist. From that pigment, they then started a printing company. Huh. That at the time, it was on the Dutch-German uh, border. At the time, uh, invented kind of a new way of printing things. Cool. And so there were these industrialists who were basically funding characters right. who they thought would deal with the technology that they were making quite well, which mm-hmm. is very separated from this kind of distinction of these kind of older canonized artists as being somehow, and particularly someone like a boys, I'd imagine, yeah. as being somehow like this pure character that's outside of funding. And it's like, no, he he was kind of like, like in, in, in the pits of depression, he was literally staying in the fat, their family farmhouse. Yeah. And all that social history is super interesting. Right. So that's the other thing that I got, like a a similar story, uh, Burroughs, right. William Mm -hmm. Burroughs, like family with a corporation. And like, I recently bought some Burroughs stock certificates because I was just like, wow, that's so amazing that this, you know, again, and there's often this kind of like, didn't know that. Yeah. So, but there's all these wonderful stories about, this is the thing is I think it's kind of anti-complexity, those, those types of like, you know, reductions into like, uh, so I just got very interested in who was associated with who and who funded what, all that stuff I still find fascinating, which is one of the reasons why I enjoy blockchain stuff because Mm -hmm. you can literally spend all afternoon clicking through wallets and (laughs) finding connections you know uh i'm sure we've actually spoken about context.app before but we're hoping to have them on the podcast at some point in the future i know that they listen to the podcast too so i should at some point invite them and not stop saying we're hoping to have them (laughs) 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 no but it's true but it's like all of a sudden then you can piece together this kind of narrative and, and that's something that like we talk about quite often is that like oftentimes the narrative that gets kind of let's say minted as like official art history mm-hmm. or official lore is so divorced yeah. from the messy and fascinating complexities of how those things actually happen right. that you wonder why do people need such yeah. simple 
you know, simple narratives about how an art moment happened or where the funding came from because yeah. it's so fascinating. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, there's and always like, like 10 more dimensions to it than you, yeah. Exactly, and to the credit of that art world as well, like actually one of the things I was really into at art school at that time was um, uh, uh, institutional critique, which yeah, is like a subgenre of contemporary yeah. art. And like the, you know, one of the Holy Grail figures of that is Hans Hacker, mm-hmm. who like did yep. these kind of early pieces which are very minimal and whatever, have like uh, steam inside a box and all these kinds of things, but then quickly went on to kind of make uh, very evocative installations about who was funding what. And those things are super beautiful and amazing formally because it also used like the language of commercial advertising, which is another thing that I've always kind of like drawn on for installation because for whatever reason, I just love a crazy graphic, you know? I mean, they're meant to catch the eye, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. We've refined this this skill over many. Yeah, and I love the timestamp that comes with certain graphics to certain moments and, you know, I don't know. And I find all of that fascinating. And, you know, Hans Hacker is a very, um, he's lauded in that canon, Mm -hmm. um, but has kind of messed with those things. But obviously, and this is maybe something else to talk about that I know you guys have talked about before as well, is, you know, Hans Hacker is like one of the, also one of the artists for, yeah, institutional critique, right? It's yep. critical work. It's work that is pointing out, you know, supposed hypocrisies and problems in the fact that these funding streams come from certain places or whatever. And that is, I guess, something that I find more complicated. Can you timestamp his work a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, he started doing this kind of minimal stuff in the, in the uh, 60s. Mm-hmm. And then the institutional critique stuff kind of emerged in the late 60s and on in the 70s and 80s. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on where this kind of institutional critique, what it mutated into mm-hmm. and like how effective or maybe ineffective it times it's been yeah. or like how, what 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 is this morphed into? I mean, there've been various different moments. And I also don't want to speak like I can tell a canon of institutional critique because okay. there are many canons, mm-hmm. but like I came into art school in Germany in the Städelschule at a time when institutional critique was being looked at again. And certainly there was a moment, an uptick in institutional critique work framed as such in the early 90s. Mm. And uh, there were certain journals like Texas of Kunst that supported those types of stories. And context art was another uh, term that got used at the time. Um, And so, yeah, Andrea Fraser was another um, big big example of that, Yeah, who kind of isn't making art anymore. And um, I don't know, I got really interested in Farida Amelie was another figure, again, around that same kind of um, social space and general idea. I mean, maybe it can be mm-hmm. like looked at with that as well and group material and I don't know, mm-hmm. like these kind of collective practices that were also kind of transatlantic. But I guess like mostly, yeah, I don't know. I was also taught by Martha Rosler, who is kind of like, again, an earlier generation of feminist art and uh, uh, critical art Um that was sort of very resonant at the time, I think, in the early 90s as well with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, well, I don't know. I don't want to tell too many figures, but I think generally there's been a lot of criticism on just how effective those critiques were. So mm-hmm. <laughs> the institutional <laughs> critique positions have been critiqued. And I think often the artists themselves also find, you know, in the end found it frustrating and, and didn't really, you know, uh, know if they were having so much effect in the way that they were. And I don't mm-hmm. know. So, but I, I think it also produced a bunch of really interesting ways of dealing with a wider context of production of art. So I guess that's what I took away from it, right? Okay. So the critical element, also interesting. I've made work in that um, idiom as well. But I just also think that art that like deals with the context of where it's being produced and what it being produced with, I just found that rich. you know. Yeah. So mm-hmm. rather than like walking into a Hans Hacker exhibition and getting angry at the fact that the same people who were, like maybe were being critiqued and were buying it or something like that, like mm-hmm. that never bothered me. It was more like, oh, here's a really literate thing that – brings in a whole bunch of context that I find actually really moving mm-hmm. yeah. and kind of amazing. You know, wow, isn't it crazy that like petrol companies are funding museums and well, don't we live in a complex world? Like that was always my takeaway, not like, fuck this, I'm leaving the I'm leaving the museum. And it, did he really take that money from that person? Like that was, I don't know, that's just was never my response. It was more like, wow, this is a really amazing rarefication of how complicated things are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I understand that in a different time, particularly going to an exhibition would have been a very different experience where, for example, you wouldn't have read much about the exhibition before you go. You may not have seen an image before you go. You kind of have this like captured audience right? in a way that like, if you make analogies to like a record that there was kind of similar deal dealings in the music industry where like the way in which albums were created were like these odd little missiles that just arrived. Yeah. You know, where you're like, they disappeared for a long time. And now there's this record that you play. Right. And, like your ability to create context around that was very much limited to like a square, <laughs> you know, it, and, and people did express themselves very well 
file in in that square right, that, yeah. that encased the record or whatever. And it's like it's something we've had a lot of conversations about before because I've definitely um what was the term uh, oh concept tronica I was gonna say context context tronica oh god <laughs> no but that's a, that's a word yeah, yeah totally. no, but, that's but, a bad word no but, that, <laughs> but there was a lot of, a lot of dis- there was a lot of discussions kind of around the mid of the last decade being like we definitely got like lumped into this being like god can't you just make a record right you know what I mean like why, why can't you just let the music speak for itself sure. and then not build this world around it yeah and it's funny because like I can't do that I can't but talking that's about like the beauty exactly yeah Yeah. Yeah. well but talking about like the introduction of 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 this capacity for like social media like the fact that you're you're always contextualizing a work by like being online yeah you you lead up to a work the work has this durational capacity that it didn't before you have the ability to just talk in real time while this thing is being experienced to people just seems like a dimension that is is a new dimension that's ripe to be played with. Yeah. And I always remember, like, I've probably used this anecdote before, but there's this amazing Louis C.K. sketch where, like, he takes his daughter to a uh, to go see a play. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And the whole time his daughter's on the phone and he's, like, getting really fucking annoyed about it because he's like, you're at this play. Like, like it's time to look switch at it off for one moment. Just right. enjoy culture for a moment. Yeah. And then they leave and his daughter, like, has learned everything about the history of the play. And, like, she <laughs> has this capacity to simultaneously enjoy the artwork, but she wants all that other stuff around it because that augments the experience for her. And I'm like, that... That's exactly how yeah. I experience it. And to be honest, when I speak to people who are like 20 or 21 or like the kids on Arena or whatever, or Discord, it's like they want the work, but they want everything else. Yeah. And so that is an expanded medium for expression. Yeah, right? exactly. No. And like <laughs> network media, you can do that, right? That's yeah. another cool thing about actually, I don't know how much we want to jump around, but like making NFTs it also involves like much more following the distribution of it, getting people involved, like, yep. you know, and also being able to fund that in the background. So totally. there's this kind of new capacity for being able to produce these networks of attention that then uh, also, yeah, brings the context into the work just by design, right? Like mm. that's just there. So that's part of what I was really excited about this year and trying to expand my language in that department as well. Totally. I mean, like the real timeness of being able to tie a collector to a work as it's being dropped. Yeah. I mean, that's insane, that's right? Yeah, and again, totally. in a har- har- historical context, has that ever existed, right? I'm aware of auctions, sure. but like tying an auction to the moment a work yeah. is being disseminated and in a sense, if the work is participatory yeah. to the moment the work is being created, yeah. that seems a, that, that seems like unprecedented. Well, right? exactly. And like, you know, the classic art historical thing is like the work is made in dialogue with the audience, right? That's the dystopian thing. It's yeah. like, you know, the audience makes the work, you put a prompt out there and then they complete it by- Cage, yeah. Yeah, and like art is social. It's a it's a social dynamic that's always has been. There's, there's, there's an object in the middle that we project onto, but like the meaning is made in a community. And that is like very easy to track and like- uh, yeah, like I guess play with in a more granular way with this particular medium because you can see it going off and people owning certain things and you can bring narratives in that into that around discussion boards and that's all the part of it, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, very exciting way to work with things. And again, like not something that doesn't take, I think, from some of those earlier lessons that I learned from artists working with media in different ways, like, yep. you know, artists making television in the 70s with cable television you do different things in different ways. I still remember this like story of like the Raindance Corporation space in Manhattan where they would like, they had a few porta packs and they would send people out with porta packs to film stuff. What's a porta pack? Oh, this was like the first um, uh, Sony. So No, it's first Sony yep. Handycam basically. Oh, that are like extremely huge. like square, like yeah, angular. Big kind things. Of, yeah. yeah, but they were like the first things and Sony again gave them to a bunch of artists who right. they knew they were using them. And, and, and Raindance Corporation, which were this like um, early group of um, artists working with video and working with television who also published the journal called uh, Radical Software which is one of the mm-hmm. best titles mm-hmm. in the history of journals yeah. I think but also <laughs> what a beautiful object um, they they used to lend these porta packs out to artists and they would go and film films whatever uh, tapes and then they came back and there was like a, a tape uh, like a tape library where yeah. you could pull from and then edit from and so there was this collective oh, production so they were happening. all sharing the mm-hmm. footage wow yeah which was really amazing and yeah I did a 
again, like I kind of sub-curated a show in 2010 when I was interested in this stuff. And I was in dialogue with one of the um, members of Randomics Corporation who still lives in Berlin, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And he had this diagram of the space they used to kind of like use these, uh, yeah, make these kind of editable stock footage in a way yeah. mm-hmm. done by artists then yeah. making kind of montages out of it like TikTok. And yeah and then they then they had these like <laughs> local tv stations they would kind of like um to broadcast them on and it was about the broadcasting it was about the network it was about you know right yep. and i found just all of that just like totally inspiring and fascinating mm-hmm. i was at the time when i was looking into it was thinking about social media right yep. actually yep. web 2 mm-hmm. yep. but of course i think web 3 might even be a better fit for mm-hmm. that model because mm-hmm. um yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, we're going to see way more dynamic expression, I think, this year has been. Define yeah. dynamic expression. Well, just dynamic in the sense of like, I, I don't know, I, I, have a, I have a horse in this race, so maybe I shouldn't talk about it. <laughs> I just think there's always interesting things being done yeah. by people who are engaged with yeah. stuff that's happening. And this is like, again, like I get my curatorial, I'm like, I curated a show in 2018 in Berlin, yeah. which I'm very glad I spent the time doing. With artists that were making work with blockchains back then. That was in 2018? That was 2018. Okay. And like they're called Proof of Work. Not an original title. I know there's been many Proof of Work exhibitions, <laughs> but whatever. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it was the first one. I don't think so, actually. I think there were other first ones. You know, many firsts, like uh, like Daphne said. Or but like, uh, but anyway, it was a really cool show and, you know, worked with people who I was fascinated with that were working with like that as a medium at the time, like Terra Zero were doing that you know mm-hmm. things and harm was yeah. doing left gallery and totally. uh, you know and also matt liston was uh doing all sorts of weird experiments in the background uh did a collaboration with a painter friend of mine avery singer crypto kitties had just started and uh and i yeah managed to get this hardware wallet crypto kitty on display from this first collector who bought it for one hundred and forty thousand dollars through a Cripsy, uh, christie's auction yeah, i remember that being a huge story there was a huge well. story yeah, yeah. and it was like the first most expensive nft ever yeah. sold or whatever but it wasn't being called an nft at the time i don't think even it was like yeah and it was at a consensus event in new york yeah but it was an auction run by christie's i remember that and i think and i was just saw this photo of this very nice hardware wallet and then when i got in touch with the collector i was like oh we're putting this show together working with foam yep, uh yep. you know ryan yep. uh from foam like made these beautiful giant inflatable uh things that were inflated by the exhaust of uh of an eth miner so they were literally bubbles and in those bubbles i put other artworks so i put the crypto kitty in the bubble but i also put this amazing money burning crypto issuing machine by a distributed gallery in there where people would come in and put their euros in and it would flame up and then you would get a little qr code I remember. And I, you know it's like and that was super fun like that a great was at time. Shinkle, right that was at the shingle mm-hmm. pavilion yeah and like sam hart was involved in curating that as right. well and he you know i met him also in another iteration of those bubbles uh, at a consensus event like yeah. the summer for beforehand so i don't know like there's always been these really interesting people getting their teeth into whatever's going on at a particular time and that's i guess also my engine has always been like wow what interesting things are happening around these new ways of being able to work with different media and which different stories being told and i guess the the history of my own personal engagement both as a fan and a curator and an artist has been to kind of like go from conversation to conversation being like wow that's uh, that's something i don't know a lot about i want to be more involved in that you know Maybe worth actually now shouting out Humbo Kunstverein. Right, yeah. Given that we've we've gone to speak about the Proof of Work exhibition, I mean, you did have three years to change the name format. <laughs> <laughs> didn't do it. Didn't do it. You know? It's consistent, though. I, it's I, I, relatively consistent. consistent. But, no. but, but more recently, you created a show at Humbo Kunstverein, yeah. uh, directed by Bettina Steinbrugger. Yeah. Out Bettina, um, called Proof of Stake. Yeah. Um, and how would you say that differed uh, from from the from the original exhibition? Quite different, mm-hmm. actually. Also, quite a different aim because I guess like in 2018, while there were like crypto art shows being made, there weren't that many, and there certainly weren't that many that I knew about. Yeah, yeah. it was also less networked at the time. I feel like it was mm-hmm. harder to find out about things, or at least from my position, it was. And so uh, I thought I had to make proof of work or else nobody else would make it you know and i was just like no one's doing this show like why is nobody doing this show this is a a show that needs to be existing and i did it to the best of my ability at the time and it was super fun and but then like 20 2021 
there's a lot of art curation yeah, yeah. going around uh, NFTs and crypto art of various different kinds, some of which is great, some of which is not so much to my taste. And um, so I was like, well, I don't need, I don't, I, you know, I don't need to curate the crypto art show anymore. Yeah, like that's yeah. not the same thing. But I tell you what isn't being done again. So same motivation is like, uh, you know, a, a broader thing that is not about medium specificity, but is more about like ideas and yeah. more about like what is important about the space. So I was like, this is why I chose proof of stake. Actually, I was like, you know, this is all about ownership. It's mm-hmm. all about networked ownership. It's all about private property. It's all about the history of what it means to own something. It's also about what it means to claim the technological to say this is technology and I'm using it and that's an important part of what's going on. All these things that are kind of assumptions mm-hmm. around like curating, I think, in the crypto and NFT space. And I'm just going to put paintings in there. I'm going to put old art of, by people that have never heard of crypto in there because I think they've touched on these issues in much more poignant ways than I know uh, coming from this particular space right now and somebody else is anyway doing it. So yep. there's some art made with blockchains in that exhibition, but far less than yep. in proof of work. Um, but there's also like... A bunch of artwork by, uh, for example, um, uh, I don't know, like an artist like Mike Kelly, who mm-hmm. is a very famous artist in the contemporary mm-hmm. art world, but, you know, died before crypto was really a thing. And, um, you know, but he made a lot of artwork around gift economies and different mm-hmm. types of economies and ways of, fen- you know, fencing off creative uh practice and and what that meant in in a a peer group so i thought well that's an interesting thing i was also in dialogue with another artist friend of mine who was sort of i got to know during the post-internet age um in the early 2000s uh timo sitchin Mm -hmm. who has made a lot of he's made some nfts as well always made work that dealt with um technology in some kind of way but he has also made a lot of work about indigenous knowledge practices Mm -hmm. and as he grew up um partly uh in tucson and Mm -hmm. uh, in dialogue with stepfather who was um an indigenous american guy and uh he folds that narrative into his practice and again there's a lot of questioning of like what technology is what property is from that perspective which again you don't see a lot in yep. uh, you know in uh, cryptopunks type <laughs> worlds again no shade on cryptopunks i also like them you know yeah. but like th- there's i i just always try and find spaces to work where i think there's actually productive work that i can do from my position that makes sense that nobody else is actually has the time to do it or whatever i feel like the kind of themes that you're that you were covering at, at that show are the kind of things that are really legible in a, in a kind of institutional setting like that. Yeah. And like you're saying, they're not often found in kind of online curated kind of NFT specific um, shows that I've right. seen. I'm wondering if you would ever attempt a kind of like NFT specific exhibition that would try to touch on some of these other topics that are kind of functioning more in an institutional... I absolutely would. Yeah, I would like to do that. It just have to be the right context. I think it's like hard to find the right context. And again, it was about like, what what tools do I have? Yeah. You know, what do I know how to use well? Yeah. I had access to these types of institutional spaces, Kunstvereine, which by the way, are these kind of German-specific, yeah. very common um, institutional spaces, which are state-funded and uh, funded by friend groups, uh, very kind of collective in the way that they're uh, put together and very unique to Germany. And there's yeah. tons of them. It's yep. Germany is a really amazing space for supporting art. Yeah, it's a network that I I enjoy working in. I've made other ex- exhibitions in Kunstweiner all over the country, um, and it just seemed like the right place to do an art a show about ownership and bring no, it makes total and stuff sense in. there. Yeah. But but I I would love to do it in other online spaces as well. Again, I I don't like making. Um, media specific hierarchies you know mm-hmm. like this is i find unfortunately a little bit dull you know mm-hmm. uh, to say like this is an artwork this is pure because it's taken care of such and such a medium and dimension I, it's just never a framework that's attracted me that maybe again comes from my education because that was uh debunked by you know art canon critics you know rosalind krauss was kind mm-hmm. of like taking that apart or whatever um so you know uh i i rather do thematic rather than medium-based curating. But I see online shows, you know, browser-based work. Obviously, you can't put an object on a browser, literally. So, you know, (laughs) I I also recognize constraints um, and and embrace constraints when they're they're making sense. So I'd love to do that show, yeah. Yeah, if only there were uh, an NFT curator protocol... But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wonder who's building that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. future future guests. Uh, <laughs> no, but um, I think that's a really exciting place to build. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. It's something I was talking to our mutual friend who you mentioned earlier, Sam Hart. Great curator, by the way. Amazing, amazing curator. curator great yeah. taste. Generally, just like 
smart, conscientious, sober, wonderful human beings. Literate human um, being. Yeah. Yeah. Li- very literate. And like, but we were discussing this recently, like in a way I feel like, you know, for the longest time, uh, Sam and us and a large group of people have had kind of since I guess about like 2016 time uh, from like crypto circle days that mm-hmm. you'll remember. Yeah. Um, Slack channel. Exactly. Free Discord. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the, the, o- the OG, uh, whatever. But the, um, <laughs> the but, first. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know, just <laughs> stacking firsts over yeah. here yeah. Uh, <laughs> rather than stacking sets, sadly. Um, but the, uh, yeah, but having a discussion, we, we have this kind of discussion group called Guild. Mm hmm that's been around for a while and and there's been this long conversation with guild where initially we were kind of debating actually kind of a, a bit pre like collector dads being like oh it'd be such a smart idea to like start collecting um you know new art in the space and like what's new about it and like yeah. one of the ideas that was new about it is kind of protocol art that right. was the term that we were using um oh, smart smart contract art right. would come into that and obviously fingerprints that i'm a massive yeah. fan of yeah of kind of stepped up to do that yeah. and we we deliberated way too long i think but i think that that <laughs> that's a really clever thing and one of the things we've been dis- discussing with sam a little bit is like it would really show a, a hallmark of like maturity in this space mm-hmm. to do in a sense what you've done with that exhibition which is to contextualize this moment in a broader longer like historical yeah that's so uh, interesting context it's fascinating it's so it's, rich it's, it's so, so rich. much great stuff. Exactly. And I mean, not to not to dismiss your bringing up uh, Hans Hacke, you know, sure. but I've heard that before. Right. Right. Like Hans Hacke is an incredibly oh, celebrated. Yeah. yeah. There's an, he's an incredibly celebrated figure in mm-hmm. art for recognizing financial relationships between yeah. things, whatever. Who else is there? Right. Well, Mel Chen, for yeah. example, that was another artist that I like, put in the proof of proof of stake show. Like he made this amazing work in 1992, which is a vending machine with like parts of the US flag in it, with yep. also like bits of junk food in it totally. called like Dispatch dispense and uh, distribute i think yep. something like that and i mean that when i saw that again i often curate with like crypto related metaphors in my mind but like with kind of like sculptures in my in my heart or something totally. like that and totally. uh and i was just like wow yeah the the that's such a interesting totally. thing to be in dialogue with other things questioning what property is right now and smart contracts and what exactly. i mean the vending machine you know uh, illustration is often used or was often used back in the day for like i guess bitcoin mm-hmm. what's a smart contract oh it's kind of like a vending machine yeah, you yeah, know? Totally. and i was like okay well that's like a beautiful beautiful piece for, again yeah, like totally. i bet you there's a lot of people who don't know of mal chen's amazing work and also like embedded network art that he made he made this incredible piece which i'm sure you guys know about as well uh in uh the 90s when uh he worked with um his class uh and he produced props for Melrose Place. And because, uh, you know, it's spelling company needed, yep. he knew that they needed props and he knew that they paid royalties for it. Yep. And he approached the kind of prop person was like, hey, look, my class will produce them for nothing. Yep. But like, you just have to let us do whatever we want. Yep. And he produced, I think, four seasons worth of props in the background of Melrose Place, which is still on the Melrose Place tapes. Yep. And like, is like, I guess, critical work about issues of the time. So there's like a condom blanket and yeah. like uh you know and he did amazingly and other things as well like a kind of a, a virus uh crt tube uh that was there and uh, you know many many other amazing clever things that i'm forgetting right now uh tiananmen square texts on chinese takeout like so wow. amazing objects yeah. and then how did he frame that at the end of the project after four seasons of uh, Merrill's Place in the background he did a Sotheby's auction yeah. and there's a beautiful Sotheby's catalogue uh, again like resonant with some NFT clever projects um, and uh, the proceeds which he gave to the demographic of the watches of Merrill's Place so mm-hmm. like uh, you know and uh, there's been That's really interesting It's a beautiful yeah, piece yeah. again like these kind of yeah. and that is sort of at the time was kind of sold to me as like a gem of institutional critique right right? but it's also a gem of like literate net art i guess Mm -hmm. networked art like so it wasn't browser based but it's like it's it's making art for television that is also objects but also auction but i mean just yeah so there's so much great stuff that uh i've been a fan of for a long time that i think could be in amazing dialogue and people like sam are very aware of these types of practices well that's and that's the point and it would it would be a hallmark of maturity 
to to not frame because whatever whatever ends up happening with the nft art space you know you definitely have kind of like canonized works of art and like modes of expression that have happened in the last year that by virtue of the price exchanged or or just the the you know the greater kind of concentration of of, of attention on them will likely endure yeah but to but to have the balls to look backwards yeah and be like well who was working with these media but it wasn't there for them to experiment with at the time yeah which would demonstrate to me a great maturity yeah and i guess even not the media yeah right like this is the other thing it's about again like it's it's about non-media specificity it's about ideas yeah yeah and i mean this is another i mean a a joke that's often made among friends about my work for example is because i you know i made (laughs) i made a lot of artwork about cryptocurrencies that went in museums uh from 15 16 onwards um but none of it was ever tied to a token <laughs> and it all cost quite a lot of money to make. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as people possibly know or don't know, installation art is quite hard to like sell and store and all yeah, these kinds yeah. of things. So it's not a great business venture to become an installation artist. Um, you know, sometimes you hit the jackpot and certain some practices get attention and sell well, but the majority don't. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and so like there's always been this classic thing. I did a, um, a, a big, huge piece in the Berlin Biennale in 2016 in a former communist headquarters, uh, which was amazing, which is now a business school. So this great place of ideological contradictions. Uh, and I made a, a theme, a, a kind of a themed room, which looked kind of like a trade fair. And uh, each sculpture was a trade fair booth. And in the middle of each booth was a blockchain entrepreneur selling their narrative, right? And so I did one of Blythe Masters, who's this very interesting banker who was at JP Morgan for a long time, was very interesting uh, in that space, and then kind of had this company called Digital Asset, which I think doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And then the second booth was uh, a portrait of Balaji Srinivasan, who mm-hmm. people who know about NFTs will definitely know of. And he had a company called 21 back mm-hmm. then, yep. which also doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and then there was a very um, optimistic looking Vitalik, uh, 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 booth there as well and all kind of shilling their version of like what the blockchain future might look like or whatever cost yeah I don't know 100,000 or something to make <laughs> didn't tie that to a, a token didn't buy the token at the time didn't you know like and everybody's just made fun of me ever since <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah no we, we we have moments of pain reflecting on uh, yeah but again like you know good. It was. I'm glad I made that work it was really interesting I've the, the, many people were like oh I never heard of ethereum before i saw that piece and like yeah. that was like even like uh you know founders of protocols mm-hmm. i mean like that's where i learned about ethereum yep. cool. <laughs> you know totally. and uh yeah and it was uh it's a funny thing to kind of like again i think you know on chain off chain okay but like really you know do we need to be so specific well something i i agree with that i mean i've also had a similar uh experience with a piece i made in like 2013 13 2014 that you know in retrospect i'm like i absolutely understand the incontrovertible argument around on-chain work sure it makes a lot of sense it's beautiful right and if you were to designate like the genesis block of ethereum as being you know day zero in art history Mm -hmm. that is a very flimsy argument Mm -hmm. um and so i think it would it would if only just to like broaden the conversation and contextualize what's happening now in a broader, in a longer historical moment. Right. It's kind of in the interests of everybody to start looking at that stuff. One, because it's fascinating, period. Right. But number two, because I think from people on the outside, there's something quite cloying to the idea that only work that happened after whatever 2016, right. you know, has any value here. Yeah. Like this, this kind of idea of kind of just like remaking the wheel or, you know, sure. oh, we're the first generative artist. Or we're the first, it, yeah. It's, of course, it's absurd and it kind of, it ends up it ends up kind of like testing credibility after yeah. time where, where undou- undoubtedly there are lots of new things happening right right and um, i also don't want to come too hard down yeah. on that side like i i get it like new mediums create possibilities for different types of interactions to happen yeah and like you know on-chain stuff that does <clears throat> work with that space and fits a certain amount of bits into a particular elegant 100%. form of software development i mean it's beautiful right yeah, like yeah. i get it you know but it's also like you know do we all have to be so incredibly greenbergian and puritanical just to kind of like just yep. say that that's the only <clears throat> legitimate form of art making like yep. and to be so like is is putting a, a, a url like or whatever that points to a jpeg is it really so sacrilegious that yeah. we, you know is that really a problem yeah, if totally. it's an interesting 
interesting thing to do. I don't think so. It's also inconsistent know? though, too, right? Because the rare Pepe's don't trade. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like there, there were tons of there were tons of JPEGs on proto yeah. NFT JPEGs right. that were posted to different chains. Right. That are not venerated, and so then it ends up it, it stretch it ends up stretching the credibility because at that point that this argument of like you know uh, code is law yeah we're you know we're we the money's there because it was the first one it's like right. well that I, I get it right. but like yeah. there were earlier things yeah on chains yeah. and it's also I, fine it yeah. can be on chain off chain I'd exactly. like to see somebody making exactly. throwing JPEG on now I don't know it doesn't matter exactly. do Ideas. you think that this conversation will still be relevant in two years three years or do you feel like it will just be kind of like a relic of today I don't I actually don't know yeah I, don't I think either. I think it could go either way I think people could get more strict with that shit you know like I really <laughs> or like, it could be a subculture, a subculture. that's really yeah. strict about it and yeah. then you have a wider space that's a bit more loose or maybe a smaller space that's a bit more I don't even know you mm-hmm. know like yeah I think I, I just think it's also I've learned to try not to predict canon building and yeah, who builds yeah. canons and what stays and what goes because things that I always thought would be canonized were not and things that I that's true d- didn't think would be canonized were incredibly canonized and I was wrong more yeah. often than I was right so I hear that and, and predictions are often false but I also sometimes like to imagine you know, what What seems so important in the moment that I'm inside of, sure. what might be temporary. Yeah. I can ask this question, though. For those listening, and I also have questions on this, what is canon? Mm-hmm. And how do you believe, like, for example, you don't have to use specific examples sure. if you don't want to, but, like, how would you determine what made canon? Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, I mean, it, in maybe, let's say, the traditional art world, because mm-hmm. this is another conversation I believe we've had uh, privately too mm-hmm. is a concern of like the the a kind of a, a, a breakdown or like a an explosion of canon yeah <laughs> as an idea yeah um is a great concern for many of us who uh kind of admire art history right and see things that we do whether or not it's recognized externally as in part of the lineage yeah, yeah. and as and in dialogue with some kind of a guide rail it's like right. if everything else is like collapsing everywhere you still have that guide rail there's still these canonized figures or artworks that you're like you know this was special yeah and even if it's not the most expensive thing or whatever it's a special lineage yeah so so one can you establish what canon is and number two maybe talk a bit about how you believe canon to be made up until this point yeah i mean i think that that maybe the first thing to say in, in dialogue with that is that obviously canons are very culturally specific and they're very institutionally specific and one sort of canon is not the same as another sort of canon and there's always been many canons i guess but what is canon okay so canon is like a a, i guess my my shit definition would be uh uh an agreed upon consensus around what's important historically yeah in in a certain genre or lineage of making artwork so uh, maybe an easy one to say is like uh, within a certain uh US centric um art world uh that I was socialized into and educated into as a young New Zealander and then as a kind of uh, expat in Germany uh MoMA the MoMA the Museum of Modern Art represents a canonical representation of like the history of modernism right mm-hmm. and like that if you look at the you know uh, at history books that are framed around it it's always in dialogue with that collection somehow mm-hmm. and that was built at some time by a particular group of people it was funded by a particular group of people it was celebrated and 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 challenged and uh, you know and recontextualized many times by a certain group of people that's a that's a canon mm-hmm. right but again like growing up in new zealand uh, i was also educated in other types of canons because there's indigenous histories of what art is there's even kind of questions of around what culture means within different, you know, cultural contexts. Yeah. So can- canon questioning is as much a part of my uh, uh, upbringing and, and socialization and education as canon building. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's interesting when these things are challenged and I guess everything's moving all the time everywhere. <laughs> so traditionally, <laughs> it's traditionally a ca- canon, is the realm, <laughs> canon is the realm of institutions in a sense and then maybe context creating organizations that the orbit institutions yeah. like publications right. the publishing of books and right. it's plastic the- and it changes <clears throat> yeah. over time it yeah. does and it's and it's context specific so actually i i like it's interesting you bring up fingerprints dow they're canon they're a canon building organization I now agree, right yeah. like mm-hmm. they're they're an institutional they're the kind of closest thing you have to an NFT museum 
um, and they have a series of uh, you know ways of thinking about what's important and what's not important. Yeah. They they have you know they have a way of defining that. They have a social group and a and a financial stake in in those stories being told and reinforced, which isn't a new thing. It's not a new thing. It's but right. it's but it's morphed into a different type of institution right. with maybe not that different players at the top. Sorry, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but like it's uh, it's it's a different kind of thing, and that's exciting actually. Like interesting also. Yeah. But yeah, canons are canons are built with interests and. And one of those interests in many ways, right, is that I remember when people were first debating putting JPEGs on a blockchain and saying, oh, we can decentralize the art world. This is mm-hmm. one of my critiques, ultimately, was right. that in some ways, the kind of art world that's being skeuomorphically represented here needs centralization of some sort, sure. right? Because ultimately, the reason why you buy the Van Gogh mm-hmm. Right. The reason why people park money in it, let's be real, mm-hmm. in most cases, like, there's a very small group of people who can buy a Van Gogh to put on the wall just to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Right. In many cases, these become financial instruments because there's a central authority there, like a MoMA or right. whatever museum, yeah. uh, you know, whatever Dutch authority that says, no, if you if you put your money in this, our sheer presence and our sheer, sheer influence will guarantee that this will not devalue right. over the next 100 years right. because we control the narrative. Right. Right. And so it- And that's it, connected to education. It's connected to governments. It's connected to military. I don't know. Like it's all these- 100%, kind of these, right. I, I could just see like uh, floating in here as the astronaut with the, it's always been that way yeah, guy exactly. coming in, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like totally. in, the, in the background <laughs> totally. because that's what <laughs> cannons are about. Right? Totally. Yeah. No, but that, but that was kind of the point is being like, okay, well, so, so in, in, in a crypto world, I do see that there, there's, there can be a decentralization in the sense of like decentering it away from traditional brick and mortar institutions. Yeah. But fundamentally in order to preserve value over time, which traditionally has been why people invest in artworks as these assets that maintain value over time. Right. You need to have a locus point of trust there. Right. Which is basically traditionally someone yeah. trained within the art school context, generally who has a bunch of money. Right. Saying, no, no, no this is important. Right. Yeah. This is, the, and this will remain important as long as I'm alive right. yeah. with the seat. Yeah. I'm not going to change my position. Right. That's and important. There's, there's a centralized mm-hmm. part of that. and But there's also, of course, like, I also don't want to, uh, seem like I don't believe in the, uh, I don't know, like real effect of an artwork in context as well. Sure. Like there are powerful artworks made, but yeah. they're, they're made within a context. Canon building is part of that context. Audience attention is part of that context. Money investments, another part. You know, all of these things come together to make that special thing that we all love to enjoy yeah. as artwork, you know, yeah. and it's now being made in a slightly different way. Yeah, there's narratives around decentralization. But again, I guess from my perspective as an artist who's always looked at the way people building businesses tell stories, like yeah decentralization okay like maybe you know but maybe not but maybe a little bit you know <laughs> well there's <laughs> new characters right? I mean, the same you yeah. can say fingerprints like we're also you know we're part of the flamingo deck collection i think that right. they've also built that i think it was really interesting i didn't attend but there was a they book. made a book yeah they made a book they made a book i mean which is like i want wow. that book you know i, I love a crossover book desperately want that book <laughs> how can um, you get us that book can I, we shout out and get a I book? I can inquire. Yeah, Flamingo members, can, can we can we have a can we just look at it? Uh, I'm a book fan. Yeah, I don't know if more than one was made, but Oh, really? I I I only saw a picture of one book. I didn't right. see multiple pictures. Very rare. But yeah, very rare. But, no, but, it, but much rare. But it but it is yeah. very interesting. It is very interesting that like in a sense, many of these kind of mechanisms from a more traditional art world, it's almost like you have to kind of break it. Yeah. And then you're like, what is the rational decision to do? Like we collected all these artworks. How do we bring them all together? It's like, let's make a book. And you're right. like, that's what people would have done traditionally. It's also funny and- because like, I go to NFT things as well and like uh, crypto things. And like, it used to be scrappy, kind of like the vibe was like um, casual, hoodie, whatever. And recently it's like suits and, you know, and castles. And it's, you know, like yeah. it's this this other kind of like these other trappings of institution making are, are, are seeping into the aesthetics yep. around the, the making of the making of this legitimacy as well. And I'm totally. like, oh, no, I, I thought I didn't have to go to a gala dinner anymore. Yeah. Like I, I went yeah. to tons of gala dinners in the art world and now I have to go to gala dinners in yeah, the yeah. NFT world. Shit. Yeah. Like- well, that's what's been so interesting <laughs> to see this like wholehearted embrace of the auction houses. Uh, yeah. I mean, the NFT space is building their own auction houses, yet they're still kind 
kind of paying these huge commissions to a Christie's or to you Sotheby's. Know, yeah, to I mean Sotheby's. Christie's and Sotheby's are very clever movers. They had they did a they did a smart thing in this uh, this year. But I guess it's you know they've always been there t- too to kind of moving. I don't know, selling cars and selling wine and selling you know I don't yeah. know. And yeah. I guess they saw a big commercial opportunity and they capitalized on it. And I think that did boost the legitimacy and attention in the NFT world to a much wider audience as well. So I guess it was this very mutually beneficial handshake yeah. that happens. I mean, I think it was. I wonder where it move where it goes from now. Yeah, like how that can continue because once the kind of seal of approval has happened. Mm-hmm. Do um, NFT sellers still need to be paying that thirty percent commission? I mean, to- they're paying all sorts of other things. You know, it's uh, yeah. I don't know. We're not all about to move off Ethereum either, right? So yeah, it's that's like true. I think there are these. Uh, you know, and I, I think again, it's a bit like putting on the tuxedo jacket and going to the castle. Like it's yeah. actually it is something that people want to be doing somehow. That's part of the experience yeah. of consuming art that they want. You know, right? They, don't, they like the person on the phone making the. They call. like yeah. apparently. You know, <laughs> they like they like their pen and eye, yeah. and you know, like. I guess, yeah, these codes shift and morph and change, but they get reinvested in. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm not to attribute cynicism to it. It's also something that, you know, in our path of selling works online, we've also started making like certain rational decisions mm-hmm. where you're like, you're just looking. It's like, it's like we don't actually have the kind of traditional gallery experience that you do. Right. But you look at what we're, you look at like what's available to you and you're like, well, you know, we're about to like, launch this new uh, series you know what let's let's get in touch with the people who previously collected works right makes sense to give them first option on yeah. this stuff because they've been hugely right. supportive right. and it- and that's what galleries do there's a lot of reinventing of what <laughs> yeah. came before yeah. but 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 again but but i don't think in a in a kind of like oh you guys are so stupid you ignored it no, no, no. But, but more in a in a actually now it makes once sense you to get do it. yeah once yeah. you get your feet wet you're yeah. like oh yeah there are right. these mechanisms that existed forever yeah. of course there are certain benefits to using these tools that yeah. by the end of it when you look at the remainder right when you like cancel out all the things you're like oh well but it's pretty cool that like you didn't need a gallery for that specifically sure right like even though i but then I, it's also pretty cool when the gallery does the work and you don't have to think about it <laughs> absolutely if they do the work well and if they can't do the work then it sucks exactly and there's a dearth of galleries who understand this space maybe enough in the short term to be able to occupy that role <laughs> right like uh, uh yeah you're you're very neutral on that position um, but, but the uh, <laughs> no i mean it's 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 interesting because i don't know yeah, I don't know how that's going to play out, actually, you know. But it, d- let me just once and for all say, when an intermediary does their job well, yeah. you know, when the middleman does their job well, uh, the middle person does their job well, it's really great because you can concentrate on some other shit. I you know, totally agree with that. I would just love that. it if the same kind of apparatus that I used to get to, you know, that I got used to having access to as an art fair museum gallery artist would be operational in yeah. the NFT space. I would love it. Right. Yeah. You know, right. I would absolutely love it. Like, yeah. because those intermediaries do tons of work. And of I think that's that's where, the, that's where the kind of narrative falls down when they're like, oh, kick out the middleman, let's disintermediate. Because like, actually that, it just means I have to do all of that work. Yeah, I, I don't that. have the bandwidth. I you know. and a, well, and a lot of that I think is we also agree. I mean, like we've had great relationships with record labels, right. and really they do admire. Work. They do work. They contextualize things. Right. There is a longer. They keep relationships up. There's a longer historical context that you enter into. Right. Like you know, we work with 4AD, which is of course a very yeah. famed, venerable, venerable building. Absolutely, right. yeah. and, and of course, releasing very strange conceptual electronic music in the context of a 4AD right. means so something audience, different. Yeah, it means something different to us doing it alone. And, and you and reach I, an audience that wants that product, right. Right? exactly, without having to garner yeah. them all yourself, right. or maybe even doesn't. Right. But, the, but the role of the in- <laughs> no, no, but true. But the role of the institution in that circumstance is to say, well, you should. Yeah. Right. Actually, the, and and that's the right. role of these right. intermediaries in that sense is being right. like, well, I know this we have this. Yeah. Even this is worth paying attention to. This is worth paying attention to. Even though it might not be something that you thought we would represent. And right. so, and that's what a fingerprints DAO or a JPEG doc space or a whatever is, is maybe hopefully doing in the future. Well, it, exactly. Or a folia dot app. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know. it, it, it's a, it's this it's this context. It's kind of like it's the cohort. Right. It's the whatever. And 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 yeah, that's that's the issue for me. That like with a lot of the kind of most hyperventilating ideas of disintermediation, I'm like, you're going to learn. Right. You know, there's all kind of advantages to it. Let's talk about that, though. Like, what are some of the, you know, we don't have to get into specifics because it's not about, like, throwing anyone under the bus. But, like, what are some of those kind of, like, roles and positions that 
we do think are worth kind of porting over and what are some of the things that actually could fall away? In terms of who's doing what? Yeah, like what are the... Where, where's the fat? Where's the fat? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the fat is when like people are not doing those things but still taking the money for it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where I see it, you yeah. know, where people say, yes, I can re- represent your interests and then actually they can't. Like that's the problem, right? You know, where they don't have the client base, where they don't have the attention, where they can't actually, you know. And that's sometimes a bit of a trial and error thing. Like you think you might have clients for a certain type of thing, but actually you don't. That 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 happens, you know. But uh, but you know, I think you can get into these situations where people are representing your interests that actually can't do what they claim to do, and that's when there's fat, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's like it's taking up space, it's actually holding people back, and this is when things need to reshift and whatever. And I mean, with with NFTs and crypto, there legitimately is a different client base on the whole than people who buy my artwork. So like, I just did a, a, a you know for me a very substantial NFT launch drop whatever you want to call it like um and that i don't think there were very many people who would buy my sculpture or my wall-based work or whatever who uh who uh, you know purchased any of those artworks Mm -hmm. um it was a whole new group of people which is exciting for me and uh, some of them are my friends and my peers so it's not that they're all unknown to me but like actually i don't think my friends and my peers would actually walk into an art fair and buy a like a like a wall-based piece either actually so i don't know so um i don't know where i was going with that but like i think there are um there's certainly people that can do certain things in certain contexts but they need to be literate in those contexts where do you think it goes like where do you because i know that you've thought a lot about kind of you know different kind of economic models for artists and and things like this where do you think that the kind of traditional gallery relationship goes if that if that kind of need can't be met in the same way. Yeah, it's a bit unclear. I mean, I think, you know, the gallery world is changing. This is a narrative that comes across often in the art world is like, you know, the only players are the very, very big players. The middle players are kind of dropping out. um, There's younger galleries, yes, but they don't have as much access to capital as they used to. And, you know, sort of five mega galleries are kind of taking all the attention and all the money, you Mm -hmm. know. And, uh, yeah, and that could continue. And I think some of those mega galleries are interested in onboarding new clients, selling new types of work to new types of people, like the like the um, the the um, the what are the auction houses are yeah. are doing, mm-hmm. right? So they're the Paces and the Koenigs of the world, uh, you know, wanting to kind of you know bring on new clients and offer new kinds of products. I think that trend will continue because they have the capacity to do so. I think again- You're listening to the free version of this podcast. If you would like to hear the full version and support this series, please visit patreon.com slash interdependence. This podcast is ad-free and only possible through patron support. Thank you. (laughs) 